0: Welcome to the third sermon in our series on wrestling with doubt. The theme for today is the gospel truth. Is the Bible true? Our text come from Psalm 119, verse 105, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 to 17, and the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And then from 2 Timothy All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Then from John chapter 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for the gift of the scriptures and how they point us towards you and how they reveal your truth to us. But Lord, help us to treat the Bible as it was intended to be treated. Help us to understand it. Help us to ask the tough questions. Help us to search for answers that truly draw us closer to you. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen is the Bible true? It's one of the most common questions that people have about our faith. Is the Bible true? Can I trust it? Should I follow what it says? Should I follow everything it says? They're important questions, and it depends largely on what you mean by true. In the 18th century, a teaching called Inerrancy became popular and remains popular in conservative Christianity today. Inerrancy asserts that everything in Scripture is true and without error, and it extends to even scientific facts and historical accuracy. According to Inerrantist, everything in the Bible is exactly true in history, in science, in everything that it says it is 100% true accurate, the word of God, dictated by God to the writers. Many fundamentalist and conservative evangelical churches require belief in inerrancy. They've made it a a statement of faith for Christianity. For them, there is no reason to question the Bible. There's no room to question the Bible. It is true as it is written. Now, some will offer the caveat that in its original languages or in its original form, it's true. But even then, we find questions. Uh, If we see things differently according to them, well, then we're wrong. If science tells us something different, then science is wrong. If history reveals something different, then history is wrong because the Bible has to be true and inerrant according to their point of view. It reminds me of the bumper sticker that I saw years ago that says, quite simply, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That is the approach that many people take to reading their Bibles. They justify their position by asking, if Scripture is wrong about one thing, how can I trust it on anything? See, they've got this house of cards mentality about the faith, that if if one part of scripture is proven to be inaccurate in any way whatsoever, then the whole thing is somehow useless. Yet we don't treat other authorities in our lives that way, not at all. We trust our parents, we trust our spouses, we trust pastors and teachers without holding them to that kind of standard. I I had great trust in my parents and would frequently ask their advice on any number of things, but they weren't perfect. They made mistakes. They might even give bad advice at some times, but I still trusted them. So why do we have this idea that the Bible has to be 100% accurate all the time in everything it says to be trusted? Because there are, in fact, contradictions in Scripture. For instance, there are two creation stories. In the first that we find in Genesis chapter 1, God creates animals first, and then man and woman are created at the same time. In the second account, Genesis chapter 2, God first creates man, and then after creating man, God creates the animals out of the dust of the ground, and then finally at the end, God creates the woman. Those two orders simply do not reconcile themselves if it's a scientific account, then something is off. There are two flood stories that are actually merged into one in the book of Genesis. For instance, God in one place tells Noah to take two of each animal into the ark, male and female. You you know the story probably. But then in another place in the same story, God tells Noah to take seven pairs of each clean animal and two pairs of the unclean animals. So which is it? Is it Two animals each, or is it 14 of some animals? In one place, the story says the flood lasts for 40 days and nights. In another, the same story says it lasts for 150 days. So what we see is two flood stories that have merged together, and if you try to make them uh, historically, scientifically accurate, you run into roadblocks. In John, the Gospel of John, Jesus cleanses the temple at the beginning of his ministry, In the other three gospels, he cleanses it at the end of of his ministry with no indication that it happened twice in either. In Matthew, Jesus ascends to heaven at the end of his earthly ministry from Galilee, up in the northern part of the country. In Luke, he ascends into heaven from the Mount of Olives next to Jerusalem, some 70 or 80 miles apart. These are just a few examples. We could actually go on and on but it's very common in scripture. Inerrancy causes us to argue over the wrong questions and to miss the beautiful message of scripture. Take the story of Jonah and the big fish as an example. You're familiar with Jonah and the whale, but the story actually calls it a big fish. Inerrancy causes us to debate questions about the size of a fish and the feasibility of a man living in a fish's belly for four days. We, we argue, well, uh, people throw up doubt about the story. Well, it can't be true because there's no fish big enough to do that. There's no way a man could live in the belly of a fish for all that time. It's just an impossible story. Inerrantists argue, well, it has to be true because it's in the Bible. They say if it's not 100% factual, then you can't trust anything in Scripture. And so inerrantists do all sorts of mental gymnastics to try to explain a story that was originally told as Hebrew poetry. A story that in all likelihood was never meant to be taken literally. And in the debate about the reality of the story, we miss the powerful messages that the story brings. God sends a missionary to Israel's enemies. Why would God do that? What about God causes, would cause God to send us to our enemies? Then Jonah is reluctant to go. What does that reveal about me and my reluctance to share God's love with those that I might not like? And then we see in the story that God is merciful to the Ninevites, to the enemies of Israel. It tells us something important about God that while we may have enemies, that God loves those enemies just as God loves us. And then at the end of the story, Jonah is mad at God for being merciful. Again, what does that tell us about our own lives, about our own struggle with a God who loves people that we might not love? You see, there's such valuable, rich, real themes of the story that are so important that we miss out on because we're arguing about the reality check of can a man live in the belly of a fish for four days? The Bible is a collection of stories written by people who were inspired by God In their own cultures and context, it reveals their understanding of their experiences of God. When we allow the Bible to be what it is, it comes alive with beautiful messages about God's love for humanity. Going back to creation, in a world where everyone believed the gods created people to be slaves, the creation story affirms that we are created in God's image that we're important, that we're valuable. So the the popular belief, the popular religious belief when our creation story was written was that God created people to be slaves. And the Hebrew people said, no, God is not like that. God is not like that at all. God created us in God's image. God treasures us. What a beautiful story that we miss out on when we're worried about six 24 hour periods, 6,000 years ago. The flood story warns that there are tragic consequences to evil behavior, something we need to be alert to, that when we behave badly, that bad things are going to happen as a result. The location of Jesus' ascension is far less important than his commission to us to go and make disciples of all nations. The Bible is God-breathed, according to Second Timothy, that's the way the original reads, that that all Scripture is God-breathed. God breathes on these words and brings them to life in our lives, just as God breathed into a clump of dust and brought Adam to life. God breathes on the words of Scripture and brings them to life for us. But Jesus is the ultimate Word of God. The Word became flesh and lived among us. He is the accurate revelation of God. We come to know Him through Scripture, and He Himself is, Reinterprets scripture numerous times in his ministry. He says, You've heard it said of old, but I tell you something new. The Bible is our guide for Christian living, but it's vitally important to use it well, never to attack others, but it's vitally important to use it well. So let me give you some hints for how to do that. Number one, read scripture through the lens of Jesus. If Jesus is the true word of God, then we interpret everything in scripture through the word of God, who is Jesus read and learn about who Jesus is. And if something doesn't line up with who Jesus is, maybe we've misinterpreted. Remember the great commandment, love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus says that all of scripture is contained in those two commandments. And so something in scripture does not line up with love of God and love of others then perhaps we have missed something. Remember the overarching themes of love, justice, compassion, and mercy. Uh, God only requires that we seek justice, we love mercy, and we walk humbly, according to the prophet Micah. And so that's got to infuse everything we understand about Scripture. As United Methodists, we should use tradition, reason, and experience to help us better understand Scripture to better interpret what it's saying, not to check our brains at the door, to consider what people have said through 2,000 years of church history and to understand just what rings true in our own spirits. Above all, we should rely on the Holy Spirit. God sent the Holy Spirit to interpret Scripture, to teach us all that God wants us to know. We should be sensitive to it and very important as well. We should never set something aside just because it's inconvenient to me. There, might, there are all sorts of things in scripture that I don't like. I wish Jesus didn't tell me to love my enemies, but he did. And I can't set that aside because it's inconvenient. I encourage every one of us to continue to wrestle with scripture. Ask the tough questions. Let the Bible be what it was written to be. Let it be a light to our journey. Amen.